Uh, we are in week three of our 12-week march through the Gospel of Luke. And in this, this Gospel, we're going to be looking through the lens of Fuse, which is our, our teaching theme here at Lake Merced. And it consists of five pillars. Uh, hopefully, you guys know these by heart now, right? Fellowship, understanding, service, evangelism, and devotion. So that we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke through the lens of, of those five uh, pillars of what we're talking about this year. And so thus far, in the first couple of weeks of this series, we've covered two significant stories in the Gospel of Luke. Number one, we talked about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with the devil. Uh, it was a reminder that, that we are at our weakest when we are alone, right? We're at our weakest when we're alone. That in our loneliness, our sin condition within us defaults us usually to self-seeking rather than being other-minded. In other words, we begin to place ourselves as king of our own lives. And in essence, uh, that's the reality of what the enemy was trying to do with Satan in the wilderness, was trying to put him in charge of his own life rather than being mindful of the, the wishes and the will of the Father. Last week, week two, we talked about Jesus calling his disciples, his first disciples. So we talked about Simon Peter, and we talked about James, we talked about John, uh, and how they come back empty-handed from a long night of fishing, which was their career, and they're told by Jesus to turn around and go back out and fish again, try again, this time with him. And so predictably, they, they catch so much fish that their boats nearly sink. And yet when they return to shore, they do something odd. They do something unexpected. They leave it all there. They leave everything and they go and they follow Jesus. It's a reminder to us of, of the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, the cost of following Jesus. There's an everythingness to that call that following Jesus means what? You guys remember? Everything. Following Jesus means everything. And so that's important for us to keep in mind as we get started this morning, because this morning's message is going to segue really, really well from last week's. So if you're visiting with us, one of the things we like to do is just think about our posture, our physical posture before God as we go to him in prayer. And so I invite you, if you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to lay on the floor, lay on the floor. If you want to stand, stand, raise hands, whatever. But let's go to God with a word of prayer as we get started this morning. Father, we, we thank you for the gift of today. As the, as the wind blows outside, we're reminded of, of the, the might and the power and, and the things that you command. Lord, you command the wind, you command the rain, you command the waves. As I saw the, the white caps on the bay this morning, Lord, all of that is, is nothing compared to the might and the power with which you wield. And so, Father, we, we come before you right now and we recognize that compared to your power, compared to your might, even the most powerful among us are, are nothing. We have nothing. You give us everything that we lack. You bless us with all the blessings that we have. Lord, they are all yours. They, it all belongs to you. The glory belongs to you. Um, the, all wisdom and mercy comes from you. Lord, you are love. And so when we are able to love, Lord, we know that that comes through you because you're a part of our life. And so this morning, Father, as we, as we think more about what it means to follow Jesus, Lord, I pray that, that little by little, you would begin to chisel at us, that you would chip away at us, that you would 
you would, with your hands, you would reach down and you would form our very hearts to be hearts more like yours. Father, help us little by little to look less like us and more like you so that we can go out into this world, into this community, into the city and do your work. Be your hands and feet. Show love. Show mercy. Dine with sinners and, and, and point them to life everlasting. Lord, we praise you. Thank you for this morning. We pray that you would, you would open our ears to hear your word, that you would speak through me, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So open your Bibles, if you would. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. Uh, Luke chapter 5 is where we were last week as well. So your, your little ribbon in your Bible may already be there if you haven't read your Bible since then. Um, but put your finger in there, your bookmark, whatever it might be. Uh, we're going to be at the, the latter half of the, the book this week, or the chapter rather. But this week we're going to be talking about relationships. Specifically the re- relationship between old things and new things. Old things and new things. Um, and how those two, the relationship between those two things commingle and relate to one another. Um, and so as I was kind of thinking about this this week, I got to thinking about Christmas gifts. And specifically, what are some of the earliest or first Christmas gifts that I remember receiving as a kid? And the, the one that immediately stood out to me, uh, I was about five years old, and <laughs> your mom's coming like, what are you going to talk about here? Uh, I was about five years old, and I got the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES. Show of hands if you ever owned, played, or had an NES, right? Come on. There's not more. There's more few people in this room who had one. We're just not participating. Who played the NES here? Now, the NES was a big deal. It was a big deal in video game history because it was the turning point for video games and moving from like a niche thing that only a few people played to something that was mainstream. It felt like everybody got an NES all around the same time. So like in 1989 or whatever it was that I got it, like all of my friends got an NES at the exact same time, the exact same Christmas, and we had a lot of fun. We could, we could play uh, games with one another. We'd go over to each other's houses. We'd lend games. We'd borrow games. We'd teach each other all the tricks and tips on like how to beat different levels and where all the shortcuts were and secrets. And I uh, had a lot of fun with that. Uh, I remember it got so mainstream that at night I would be like brushing my teeth and getting ready for bed. And my mom would have like the phone in her ear and she'd be talking to her friends. <laughs> and she'd be like, oh yeah, like I got to this level. And I got like so many coins. She's laughing because she knows I'm telling the truth. <laughs> They'd be comparing notes to see how far they got. Like it was so mainstream, even our moms were competing with one another. And so, uh, you know, we, we had a really we had a blast playing it. Um, now it's, it's no surprise now that, that video games became like a huge industry. But until the NES, video games were, were like not mainstream. They were like Dungeons and Dragons. Like a few people had played them. Like, <coughs> like maybe you had a friend who had Atari. Or like you'd played Pong once or twice, but like it wasn't something that everyone was doing by any means. But the NES was special. It came on the scene, like the iPhone came on the scene, and it sort of changed uh, childhoods for a lot of people. So that's what I did. Like for the next three years, uh, my friends and I played that thing almost every day. We played the NES all the time. But you know, all good things must come to an end. And so a few years later, I, I hung up my, my NES controller for good and walked away from it. You say, why? Well, it's because it's 1992 and the SNES just came out. So the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, and I had that. 
And it was awesome compared to the NES. It had better graphics, all these new games. We got Mario Kart and we got Donkey Kong Country and I, I enjoyed playing all those. And I wore that thing out until about 1995 when I put that thing down and I picked up my PlayStation controller for the first time because Sony had jumped into the mix and now the graphics were even more amazing. It was more super than even the Super Nintendo. And so I was set for life, I thought. It can't get any better than this. Then five years later, about 2000, the PlayStation 2 comes out. And so I, I, that's the superest of them all. It's, it's faster, it's better, better graphics. And so I, I picked that one up and again, I'm set for life and I'm playing this thing every chance I can get. And, and what I want you to begin to see is just how much video games were a part of my life. I don't know if you had something like that as a kid where you could just like grow up with something. But video games were there for me, like from the time I was five until, you know, whenever, they were there and they, they kept growing with me. And so every three or four or five years, a new system would come out and you get this like, this shot of adrenaline into your video game addiction because some new system would come out and new games and you just had, like, had to have it. And so you're off to the races yet again. And so whatever it was, like you had to be the best. And so it got, so, it got to be so much a part of my life that by the time I was 18 years old and I was in college, I was going home and I was spending somewhere between four and six hours every day, every single day, playing video games, uh, pretending to be a Navy SEAL, hunting terrorists in the jungle. There's this game called SOCOM. You'd play against 15 other people from around the globe. And I had a blast with it. And I, I, I grew up with it. It was part of who I was. But I want you to notice that I used the word was. It was part of who I was because something had to shift in me. Now to this day, you can still dig through my boxes in my shed. You can find every system that I just spoke about and they all still work. And if you know anything about NES, you still have to blow in the cartridges. You know, there's like, you have to do that in order to get the games to work, but they still work perfectly. Uh, but you'll notice I never mentioned anything about a PlayStation 3, that came out. I never mentioned anything about a PlayStation 4. And just this year they announced a PlayStation 5 is coming. None of those were part of my life. The PlayStation 2, 20 years ago, was the last system that I ever played seriously. And, uh, and I stopped playing it in about 2005. And you ask me why, say why. Why? There we go, good job. Uh, I'll tell you why, I'm glad you asked. Um, it was because something new entered my life that, that, that brought me to say goodbye to something old. In 2005, I got married. In 2006, I became a dad. And a combination of those two life events meant that video games just didn't have room in my life anymore. They, they would basically become a thing of my past. Now, I will admit, there was this 2008 resurgence when Guitar Hero came out. If you remember Guitar Hero. And we played all the time, and we got really good at Guitar Hero. But I don't consider that the same thing, because Tiff and I did that part together. She was never into video games, but she liked Guitar Hero. So we got to do that thing together. It wasn't this Josh-only thing. But from that point on, video games basically became about who I was, rather than who I am. And that was a profound shift in my life. In fact, you know, there have been lots of, of small shifts like that that have happened with me over the years. Uh, I mentioned on Facebook the other day, uh, a little over a year ago, I, I made the choice to cut way back on carbs and sugar in my life. That was one of those things that I, I said goodbye to and I hope to never really say hello to too much again. Uh, Tiff and I, in our first year or two of marriage, spent a lot of time binging on Netflix and watching the show Lost until two o'clock in the morning. Any Lost fans in the room? Anyone watch Lost? Okay, all right, we got a few people. You know how addictive that show was, just episode after episode. But having a toddler managed to take away the temptation to do that 
because sleep was valuable. And I, I think that's a, a reality for all of us. I think all of us have had to bid farewell to old, significant, and core parts of who we were in order to embrace or become the new person that we are. And I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what it is for you, but I bet you have your own stories to tell too. Uh, are you the person who permanently changed to eat something better? You, you changed to eat healthier food? Or are you the person who decided, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live a really fitness-oriented lifestyle, I'm gonna get out and I'm gonna exercise all the time? Like, is that part of your story? Is that part of who you are? Or maybe you're the person who had to leave an unhealthy relationship, or who had to leave an unhealthy addiction, or who had to leave an unhealthy career. Like, whatever it is, there's probably something in your, in your past. In fact, raise your hand, if you ever had to purposefully and consciously say goodbye to an old you so that a new you could step into its place. Is that part of who you are? Yeah. It's something that, that I think we all face, and it's something that people in Jesus' day faced as well, specifically when Jesus showed up in their lives. And so as I sat out this week intending to, to preach from Luke chapter 5, I thought I was going to be starting in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And yet as I studied, I realized and became convinced that this text actually begins back in verse 27. So we're going to be looking at, at starting in verse 27. That's a familiar scene as it relates to last week's message because Jesus is showing up and he's calling new disciples yet again. Last week he called Simon Peter, he called James, he called John, and now this week he's going to call Levi. And so I invite you to read along with me. We're going to go verse by verse. I'll give you just a moment to open up your Bibles to Luke 5, 27. And so the text begins like this. After this, this being that Jesus had just healed a leper, not a leopard, a leper, and then a blind man. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. And Jesus said, follow me. And Levi got up, left what? Everything. Everything and followed him. Now, now right off the bat, as, as we just, the echoes just indicated, that last phrase should sound awfully familiar if you were here and you heard last week's message. Because Jesus calls, Levi hears, and then just like Simon Peter and James and John, Levi also decides that he will leave everything to go and follow Jesus. Amen. And so following Jesus means? Everything. That was weak. Let's try that again. Following Jesus means? Everything. Thank you. Yeah. Now, the thing to understand here is that being a tax collector was not an envious position to be in at all. Like if I say lawyers or if I say politicians and you feel inclined to, to kind of grumble or mumble underneath your breath at all, then you kind of understand what I'm getting at here and how tax collectors were viewed in Jesus' day. So Levi would not have been celebrated by the people because he would have been seen as a liar. He would have been seen as a cheater. And so the mere fact that Jesus would approach like that kind of guy and offer that kind of guy a chance to follow him was not something to be taken lightly. But Levi takes the deal. Levi takes the deal, but it's what he does next that I think is kind of bizarre. In verse 29, the text says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So what's the first thing that Levi does in leaving his old life behind to follow Jesus? What does he do? 
he celebrates. He celebrates. Yeah, he shares his face, but he, but he celebrates. He throws a big party for Jesus. And I want you to contrast that with the reaction in the story of the rich young man, or the rich young ruler that we talked about last week, where Jesus shows up, calls him to leave everything behind, and we're told that that man walks away what? Sad. He walks away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Levi is not sad. Levi is not regretful about what he's leaving behind. He throws a party in Jesus' honor. And, as Barb alluded to, he invites all his other lawyery, politician-y type friends uh, to come along. He invites all the unsavory members of his inner circle to come and be in communion with this Jesus character. I mean, this is sort of the exact opposite of the way that people sometimes treat their faith today. Like, if you were going to invite someone into faith or into the relationship with Jesus today, the first thing you might say is like, why don't you come to church with me? But we all know that when you come to church, a lot of times there's like rules and there's like a culture that you have to be mindful of. And so you might be tempted to say like, well, make sure you dress a certain way. Make sure you dress nice and like try not to cuss. I know you like to use that word a lot, but try not to use it at least for this hour and a half that you're there. And like when they pass tray around, like break the bread, like we have, we give all these instructions for how to do this. That's not how Levi or Jesus behave. And and that begins to raise some eyebrows. So the text says in verse 30, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And those two terms are interesting. They're, They're kind of used in a synonymous way here. Like when the Pharisees see tax collectors, what do they see? They see a party of sinners, right? They see Jesus at a party of sinners, and here's this crazy rabbi, like, hanging out with them. And they're puzzled by that. And I I love what one particular commentator has to say here. He said, you know, the general contempt for tax collectors can be seen in that they they often appear alongside thieves and prostitutes in the Bible. That's where you often see them alongside. Now, I love that line because regardless of which side of the aisle you subscribe to in politics and in D.C. and all that stuff, there's sometimes a general perception among the public that some of those politicians on either side of the aisle often also appear alongside thieves and prostitutes. Uh, This is interesting to me. So if you want to understand how these guys are viewed, look no further than how the public views the integrity of politicians in D.C. Like, that's the essence of what the Pharisees are taking issue with. Like, Jesus, why would you hang out with these cats? Why would, you, why would you spend time with them? Why would you eat and drink with them? I also want you to notice that before Levi begins to follow Jesus, what does he have to do first? He has to leave behind his old way of living. He leaves everything. And so now Jesus hears their question. And the interesting thing here is that Jesus doesn't refute what they have to say at all. He doesn't say, hey, these guys aren't sinners. Nothing like that. In fact, he basically tells them, hey, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm even here, guys. So verse 31 says, Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need the doctor or need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But what's interesting here is that you can almost picture Jesus using air quotes when he says sinners and when he says righteous, like I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He doesn't argue that, that these tax collectors are sinners, but he, but he sort of sarcastically, I think, implies that, that they, the Pharisees, are actually a quote unquote righteous group of people. And so now the Pharisees 
They're, they're experts in the law, right? That's what they're supposed to know better than anybody. They know the law. They know God's word. They know it like the back of their hand. They know the writings of the prophets. And, and yet their, their own sense of self-righteousness in this moment blinds them here because what they should be saying is, no, 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 Jesus, like, you know what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. He said, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Like he, he, they should have known that text. They would have known that text. Their expertise should be informing their ability to say that about even themselves. Like, hey, we are not righteous either. But you'll notice they don't do that. They don't do that. Instead of seeing what Jesus is actually saying and being able to look at themselves objectively as sinners too, they go the other direction. And you see, they lean into their own righteousness. Here in verse 33, they said to him, okay, but John's disciples often fast and pray, and the Pharisees' disciples fast and pray, but yours, Jesus, yours act differently. Yours go on eating and drinking. And I want you to notice, if you have your Bible open, notice the connective tissue between verse 33 and verse 30. Both, reference, both make reference to eating and drinking, which I think is our first clue as to why this, this, these two sections actually belong together. Because if you're in NIV, 27 and 33 are, are kind of broken up into two different sections. But it, what I want you to see is that in these days, it was a Jewish custom. It was a Jewish custom that every obedient Jewish follower would fast from sunup to sundown two days a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Every Monday, every Thursday, from sunup to sundown, they would fast. And while we're not told explicitly what day of the week it is, from my vantage point, based on the way they're reacting, I think it's, there's a strong likelihood that this, this banquet, this party that Levi's throwing, is either happening on a Monday or a Thursday. This is a day, in other words, that they, the Pharisees, are all fasting. And this is a day that John's disciples would all be fasting. And yet they look at Jesus... And they say, like, why aren't you teaching these people to do what they're supposed to be doing? They should not be feasting. They should be fasting like we all are. In other words, how are the Pharisees trying to appeal to Jesus in their argument? They're appealing to him on the basis of tradition, on the basis of tradition. They're appealing to him on, on like what we always do. Tradition says, this is what we do. It's Monday, it's Thursday, from sunup to sundown, we should not be eating. It's just what we do. It just is. They appeal on the basis of tradition. But Jesus responds to them here in a really curious way, kind of a, a parable-esque way. Commentators would call it parabolic. Verse 34, Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them in those days they will fast. So what is he saying right here? He's saying that, that fasting, usually the way fasting was used is it, it would accompany like grief or it would accompany mourning. So he's, he's, he's alluding to that, but, but he's saying, this is not a time of mourning, guys. This is a time of celebration. Right. Why are we celebrating? We're celebrating because a sinner, Levi, has decided to leave his old way and embrace a new way of living. Amen. So why would it make sense for them to fast right now? Like who would go to a wedding feast to fast? How many of you have ever gone to a wedding, gone to the reception and said, no, it's a fasting day, I'm just gonna sit here. No, we all go and we enjoy the feast. Right. Nobody does that. Yeah. 
And then when the wedding is over and the bridegroom goes away, if you're going to fast, that's when you fast. You don't fast during the wedding. You don't fast on potluck Sunday, right? We don't, that's not, we don't do that. We enjoy the food. But that's not all that's going on here. Because again, who, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to, to experts in the law. And this bridegroom language, again, is really, really significant because it's the same kind of language that God uses of himself, particularly in the writings of the, the Psalms and the prophets. Look at what, what he writes in Isaiah chapter 62. This is verse 5. It says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder, notice the capital B, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now, if you look at the Psalms and the prophets, there are at least eight different references to God being a bridegroom. That's language that, that the Old Testament uses repeatedly. Uh, in relation to, bridegroom is used in relationship between God and the, the nation of Israel, between God and his people. They portray a marriage covenant between God and his chosen people. In fact, if you look at the entire book of Hosea, the entire book of Hosea is sort of a metaphor of this marriage covenant where God tells that the prophet Hosea that I want you to go marry a prostitute. And this prostitute will never, ever be faithful to you. You will be faithful to her, but she will never be faithful to you. And if you can imagine how painful that would be, then you realize this is a metaphoric uh, explanation of the infidelity of God's chosen people toward him, where God is, is the faithful bridegroom and Israel is the adulterous prostitute bride. Like it's really, really provocative stuff. That's what the entire book of Hosea is about. And now Jesus is using this really familiar bridegroom language, only now he's using it about himself. Like this, this is really, again, provocative kinds of stuff that Jesus is saying. And so if God is a bridegroom to the people of Israel, and if Jesus is a bridegroom here to tax collectors and sinners, you might begin to understand why Jesus' teaching is starting to raise some eyebrows for the Pharisees. Like this is a different kind of rabbi that they've run into here. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, there will come a day when I will no longer be here. And when that day comes, then my disciples will fast. But now is a time to celebrate. Now is a time to feast because I am here. And then he actually does segue into a real parable. And it's almost like he's saying, like, all right, if you guys want to talk about eating and drinking, like, here's a story about wine. I'll, I'll kind of use your, your language and your thinking right now. So verse 36, you can read along. It says, Jesus told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not even match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. So no, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And I'm purposely not going to read verse 39 right, right yet. So Jesus gives the Pharisees two examples to kind of illustrate what he's talking about. He's illustrating why there's a disconnect between what he is doing with his disciples and what they have been doing with theirs and what John is doing with his. And he basically equates it to an old way 
versus a new way. Old versus new. So he says, number one, essentially he says, you don't destroy the new to fix the old. You don't destroy the new to fix the old. If I wrecked my car, would it make sense for me to go to the dealership, buy the exact same model that I had just wrecked, bring it home and part it out, take parts off the new model to go and fix my old car? Would that make any sense whatsoever? Absolutely not. Corey says, eh, maybe. <laughs> and that's why Corey's still working on school here. <laughs> no, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't go part out a new car to fix an old. That wouldn't make any sense. Uh, and so number two, he says, don't combine the new with the old if it ruins both. Don't combine the new with the old if it ruins both. I have a picture here for you of what that might look like. There you go. <laughs> Don't ask me, I have no idea. But somebody who had way too much talent and time on their hands decided to make that car. You don't combine the new with the old if it ruins both. And so I wouldn't take a 1966 classic Mustang and then go and combine it with a 2021 Mustang Mach-E. Now would I? That wouldn't make a lot of sense. For one, they look nothing alike. And number two, one runs on petroleum and the other one runs on electricity. Like they have nothing in common with one another except for a name. And so, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to read verse 39 yet, but, I, but it's here in verses 36 to 38 that I think uh, serve as, as the climax to this entire section of text. What is Jesus trying to convey both to the Pharisees and to the tax collectors here? What is he trying to convey to both groups of people? He's looking at both groups of people, and he's telling them essentially the same thing, that their old way of life doesn't work anymore. Why? It's because the bridegroom has arrived. The bridegroom is here, and so your old way of life doesn't work anymore. He looks at tax collectors, and what does he do with them? He celebrates with them. He celebrates because Levi has left everything to follow Jesus. And so he looks back at his old way of life, Levi does, and decides there's nothing here for me. And he leaves it behind. He leaves everything. No looking back. No looking back. That's what Levi does. And in a few chapters, Jesus is going to invite some more people to follow him. This is in Luke 9, verse 61. He invites a man to follow him. And this man says something that I think is very relatable to all of us. He says, okay, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Seems reasonable. But here's how Jesus responds. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There is no room. There is no reason to look back at who you were, to look back at your old life. And that's who Levi is in the story. He's a man who's invited to follow and who doesn't waste any time looking back in the past at who he was. And I gotta tell you, this, this is convicting for me right now, personally. A lot of you know we're in the process of selling our home and trying to get moved over and all this stuff. And I gotta tell you, I love my home. Tiff, Tiff made it an amazing house for us. I love where we live. I'm comfortable there. It's a far better home than we ever dreamed or imagined that we'd have. And yet God has called us to move on from it because he has better work for us here. 
And so I'm going to miss my home. But if all I did was spend my time looking back at what I had, rather than looking ahead to what God has in store for us, then I'm not fit for service in the kingdom of God. I have to be willing to leave that stuff behind and press on toward what God has for us today and tomorrow and in the future. Otherwise, I'm not fit for service in the kingdom of God. So that's Levi. But what about the Pharisees? What's the first thing that they do? What do they run to? Well, if you go back and look at this, they, they run to tradition. They run to what's old. They run to what's familiar. They run to what's comfortable. And what's comfortable for them is the fact that, look, at every Monday and Thursday from sunup to sundown, we fast. That is what we do. So Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you doing this? This is what we do. And Jesus essentially answers, hey, guys, that's, that's old wineskins. That's old wineskins, and I am new wine. I am new wine. And so when Simon Peter and James and John follow Jesus, they leave behind their old life. When Levi chose to follow Jesus, he left behind his old life. And now the Pharisees are confronting Jesus but because they are blinded by their old life, they don't see what he's saying. And so church, here's what I want to say. Like, we all have an old life. Every single one of us have an old life. And that past is different for every single person in this room, but it's there. And for a lot of us, the temptation is to try to receive Jesus, to receive the new wine that he offers, that, that he represents, but we take it and we try to shove it and make it fit into our old wineskins. We try to make it fit into our old life. We try to fit Jesus into our lives. But Jesus doesn't fit into our lives. He doesn't fit into my life. Notice how possessive I'm being there. How many of us think about life as mine? This is my life. These are our lives. Jesus doesn't fit into that. And so what happens when you pour old wine into new wineskins? Well, as the wine ages... It ferments, it, it emits gases and expands and all kinds of stuff. And what happens with the old wineskins? Well, they've lost their ability to flex. They've lost their ability to expand. And so they're rigid. And so while one is expanding, the other is resisting. Like it doesn't work. I remember being a kid and my dad showed me a little trick. He said, hey, take this, this empty medicine pill bottle. Put a little bit of baking powder in it and a little bit of vinegar in it. Put the lid on, shake it and throw <coughs> So I did, it was like a little kid grenade, right? You'd throw it and, and make a mess on people. What would happen with that thing after just a few seconds? It would burst open, right? There'd be all this fizzy foam everywhere. And that's what happens with, with new wine and old wineskins. They burst open and both are ruined. You know, one of my former preachers growing up said, this is just enough Jesus to be miserable. That was his, his phrase. This is having just enough Jesus to be miserable. Like you aren't happy with him, you aren't really happy without him. And that's exactly where a lot of us try to live. Like a little bit of Jesus, right? New wine. And a little bit of my old life. A little bit of me. Old wineskins. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. And I think there are lots of ways to apply this text. You can talk about this in a personal sense. How many of us try to put new wine into our old wineskins of life? That's kind of how we've been talking about this. You can talk about this as far as organizations go. Terrell, you work for Apple. 
At some point, they had to realize they had to put new wine into new wineskins, right? You know, this is some years back, and it worked. But when they were trying to put new wine into old wineskins, it wasn't working. But it also works for churches. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times churches are trying to figure out how to combine new wine with old wineskins, and they wonder why we're struggling. They wonder why the church is shrinking. You can't do it. And so as we talk about being fused, as we talk about growing in fellowship, as we talk about growing in understanding, as we talk about growing in, in service and in evangelism and devotion, I want us to ask ourselves a question. And here's the question. What is the old me that I have not yet let go of so that Jesus can pour in new wine? What is the old me that I have not let go of so that Jesus can pour in new wine? What have you held on to? Are there traditions? Are there lifestyles? Is there sin? You know, oftentimes we think of things as good and bad. Give up the bad things in my life so that I can let the good in. But that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes it's a matter of good, better, and best. Is fasting good? Go like this. Fasting's good. But Jesus offers new wine. And so Jesus is best. And there may be something really, really good in your life right now that is holding you back from being the best. There may be something good in your life that is still holding you back from giving everything to Jesus. Dan, I really liked your communion today. Having a job is good. But does having a job that, that holds you back from having the life with Christ that you want to have, is that the best? Mm-hmm. No. Sometimes you have to give up what's good so that you can have what's best. Sometimes it's obvious when you need to leave your past behind you, right? Sometimes it's obvious when you should leave everything to follow Jesus. If you are a drug dealer, I absolutely encourage you to leave everything behind. Everything. And embrace a new life with Jesus. That's right. If you're a prostitute... I absolutely encourage you to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. If you're a hired assassin, I absolutely encourage you to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. That stuff is obvious. But sometimes it's a lot less obvious. For me, it was Nintendo and Netflix and eating bad food. For you, it might be something else entirely. But there is an old you. There is an old you that needs to give way to the new wine that Jesus offers. Amen. And that's true for everyone in this room today. Whether you are a Christian as you sit here right now, or you're not, whether you're nine or you're 90, it's true of you. And so the Bible calls us to put to death the old us. Amen. Put to death the old us. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So I want to ask you, who is the old you that needs to be crucified? What parts of your life right now need to be crucified? That's the question I think for all of us to ask and answer as we reflect on today's text. But Jesus' message to me 15 years ago when he called me to hang up the the PS2 controller was the same one that he he delivered to to Simon Peter and to James and to John and to the rich young man and to Levi, the tax collector, and finally to the Pharisees. It's a call to put away 
to crucify an old me so that we can receive new wine, so that we can receive new life. And so I want you to to maybe remember it this way. May I no longer be because Christ lives in me. May I no longer be because Christ lives in me. Say that with me. May I no longer be because Christ lives in me. Church, that's a phrase that I pray that you repeat to yourself and meditate on this week individually. It's a phrase that I pray that we think about and meditate on corporately here as a church. It's a phrase that I pray sticks with you as a father and as a mother and as a son and as a daughter and as a brother and sister, as an employee and as a sinner. May I no longer be, may I no longer be because Christ lives in me. It's a call to put aside the old ways of life and embrace a new way of life. And so if you're hearing that phrase this morning, and if the Holy Spirit is doing anything in your heart right now to convict you, what is he calling you to do? What is he calling you to do about it? Like, are you ready to go all in for Jesus? Are you, are you ready? Are you willing? Are you able to leave everything to follow him? Wherever that leads, whatever that means, whatever the cost is, would you give up everything to follow Jesus? You know, in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And we're going to give Jesus everything we have. But I want to invite you, if you are ready to receive Jesus into your life, as we sing this song, I welcome you to come forward. Come talk to me. I'd love to hear what's on your heart, what Jesus is doing in your life right now. But as we close, I want to go back and I want to hit that last verse that we skipped over just a little bit ago. It's verse 39 and it reads like this. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new for they say the old is better. Now, that's a really confusing thing to say after 40 minutes talking about new wine, new wine, new wine. Old wine, as anybody here who's ever had wine knows, is always better wine. But all fine wine starts where? It starts as new wine, right? All fine wine starts as new wine. Church, we start our journey as new wine, in new wineskins, but that is not where we stay. That is not where we stay. Old wine is simply new wine that is aged and matured. And so the call that Jesus puts on our life today is to start. Start a journey with Jesus. And then, once you're in new wineskins and you have new wine, Let him age you into the fine wine that he has in store for you. And so we invite you to come and start that journey this morning. May I no longer be. Why? Because Christ lives in me. Let's stand. Let's sing to Christ with our whole hearts, church.